Hello everybody, and welcome to this special episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. I am your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's special episode. That's right, it's another in our series of interviews with the people behind the films that we love to watch. Recently on the programme, we were very fortunate to get to review a West Australian film that was released this year called An Ideal Host, and today I get to interview the director of said film. It's Mr. Robert Woods, everybody! Hello! Robert, how are you doing? Oh, I'm about a seven. About a seven, excellent. And uh, Robert, of course, this is uh, a bit of a fun one for for us, because you're the first guest in the interview series that is actually someone we've heard from on the program before that's true i've done a, a couple of couple of podcasts mm. um and they're great fun yeah so you won't be getting any easy treatment though the hard questions are coming oh okay <laughs> i'll prepare uh but yes uh so first of all robert um who are you and what do you do i am a i guess a filmmaker now mm. <laughs> um from perth western australia and um i pretty much I uh, have been working in the film industry here for the last decade or so, um, mainly in post-production, doing editing first off, and then visual effects and uh, motion graphics, and then a bit more into compositing and then shooting and now directing. Yes, so an ideal host, uh, which is the, the, the reason that the microphones are here when we're having this conversation, as mm-hmm. opposed to a normal conversation between us, which are not broadcast. Um yes. <laughs> Um, obviously, we're going to talk a lot about that, um, and that being obviously um, your your most recently released work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'd just like to get a little bit of a sense, I suppose, of um, of your background in terms of what was it that kind of brought you into the film sphere, into the sort of video uh, creation area. I guess what what was it that attracted you? I think it was. Um... Uh, from a young age, a love of narrative storytelling and also a big connection with uh, visual storytelling. Mm. Um, I was always a rabid film goer mm. and fanatic and um, I knew from a very young age that I just wanted to have something to do with the creation of um, storytelling mm. in on the screen. Do you have... I suppose, like, that first formative moment with film. Like, some people have, like, very distinct memories of the first time they go to the cinema. Is, is there one for you? There isn't one, no. Okay. There's, it's, I, I don't know where it started. It would have, it would have been in primary school, early mm. primary school, uh, from an early age, definitely. Mm. Um, but it was always just going to the video library and renting out a bunch of videos and watching as much as I could, mm. um, and that's what I wanted to do all weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and I still do. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, it's, it's nice to know you've got a consistent interest throughout yeah. your, your, the span of your life so far. Um, and then uh, you, you get into the industry of film. And like today, we are sat in an office that, that is yours. Yes. Um, it is a very nice office. I'm pleased to report to everyone. It's very tidy, very clean. Uh, but also, um, you when I arrived, we're working in video editing, um, a music video. So I'm sort of curious as to what was the, what was the entry point for you to, to this world that you now inhabit? So I, I, uh, went to university and studied film and television, Mm -hmm. um, and met lots of like-minded friends there. And when we all left university, we all kind of went off and 
tried um tried our hand at getting jobs doing various things and anytime someone got a gig um they would call everyone else up and say hey can you come and hold a boom here or hey can you do this there and then by doing that for many years for no money Mm. slowly started to meet people and then um get offered jobs and and more regular work from that Mm. and i started with a post-production company here many years ago and um and then moved from there to another one and then to another one Mm. um doing bigger and bigger jobs and just slowly kind of worked up Mm. like that so i mean obviously looking at this from the perspective um as some of our listeners may have of no um knowledge of the world of the business of making film or the business of creating this content um it it sounds like from that sort of perspective that you you just hopped from sort of like one job to the other without if i can put words into your mouth um open up here we go um uh it it sounds like you were there wasn't necessarily a clear delineated goal with with your beginning of your career um not really because i had an interest in pretty much every aspect of filmmaking so i kind of i would take any job Mm. and um didn't really get a a sort of body of work in one particular area Mm. um even at university mm. you're meant to specialize in a stream and i even yeah. there i kind of did a, ended up doing a bit of everything so now, did you was that detrimental for you do you um, think in in terms of that initial like this is robert he's a sound guy or a cinematographer or it, honestly it's only been detrimental uh a little bit later in my career because to get people to see me as not just an editor because that's mainly what I'm known for um, has has been the issue and to get people to give me a go at directing or and mm. composing for a short film mm. has been harder to do um, but now that's slowly starting to happen as okay. well so interesting because um, I have to say I have a very similar uh, starting point where I did film at university I mm. finished the degree And I also didn't specialise because I was interested in all these different areas. Um, The I think my problem specifically was that when I finished, I kind of felt a little bit um, as though I didn't have a place in film. And also in that time, I'd gone more into the world of theatre and had found more of an interest there and pursued that. So even though I had the film degree... Mm it wasn't film that was really interesting me by the end of the three, four years. It was, it was working in the theatrical space. Um, but I certainly felt not specializing early on, like some of my, um, contemporaries had was actually a, a detriment to me. Cause if I'd maybe picked say, um, sound recording and I'd gone, this is going to be my thing and I'm going to be the boom operator and have that pack as I did do on a couple of films. But if I'd made that my sole focus for three years, I feel as though maybe, that could have been something I pursued. Oh, definitely. But um, but also, I, I I presume that you feel the same. It's all dead interesting, and I wanted to have a crack at all these different things. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It, like it's great for when you're um, when you're starting out and making your own stuff, mm. and you can just uh, if you need to edit something, or if you're jumping on sound recording, or if you're have to if you have to pick up a camera and shoot stuff that you just have the basic skill set to do that and be able to make your own stuff because that's pr- 
pretty much the only way you can get stuff get enough content for a show reel mm. together to actually get jobs mm. <laughs> so um that's kind of what i did and um from years of making stuff with friends through primary school and high school um and then through university just teaching myself um i had a pretty good knowledge of editing software and using computers and um and trying different things out um in terms of visual effects and what i could achieve so i had that base there already and that helped me um greatly getting my foot in the door in mm. some pro production companies mm. so you're working at these production companies mm -hmm. uh you're also um side hustling as a as a musician for improv groups because <laughs> that's where i met you yes <laughs> um, yep. um but but I, I kind of want to know where does an ideal host kind of enter this because as as, as far as i'm aware this is your feature film debut as it a is, director yes. so so w when did um getting towards directing this film kind of entered the, your process um okay well it actually came about because i also have spent the last decade um doing theater sh theatrical shows music mm. theater um with a writing partner tyler jacob jones mm. and um we were i was doing that initially just for fun um and then we started doing a bit more rigorous um productions with like planning and schedules um and then touring um and it became a bit unwieldy for me and mm. i said uh can we just um can we just use the same structure that we use to write a show for theater and do the same thing but for movies mm. and instead of doing a, like say a fringe show where we write a musical in a couple of months and then put it on in january could we write a screenplay in a couple of months and then film it in January? Right. And that was the, the process that you then followed for An Ideal Host? Yes. Hmm. That's exactly what we did. So how did taking, I suppose, the, the theatrical process and then applying that to film, how did that work? Was it, was it an easy fit or was it more difficult than you first anticipated? Um, the coming up with the idea and the writing and structuring and getting a script together worked pretty much exactly the same as it did mm. in theater um uh, i think i think we wrote quite um visually in our music theater shows anyway mm -hmm. um uh but it was it was more towards the pre-production or the non-existent pre-production and then mm. the shooting that mm. it um, proved to be quite polar opposite. <laughs> right. But then also the um, the outcome is also a polar opposite and mm. one that I'm particularly fond of in terms of touring um, a theatrical show versus touring a film yeah. around to festivals. It's, it's much easier. <laughs> yeah, touring a film is here's the hard drive or here's the disc essentially yeah, it's great i love that process so much more <laughs> than actually yeah flying around with the 50 instruments on your back <laughs> yeah um but i suppose one of the things that um I, I i'm sort of interested in learning about as as indeed um listeners who have never made a film mm -hmm. would would know about when you're first kind of you have the notion of making a film 
um, I, I understand obviously it's very different for lots of different films, but using this film as the example, is it just a case of one of you, yourself or Tyler, going, I have an idea for a film in terms of I have an idea for a script or I have an idea for uh, a setting or maybe, like you say, the process of let's follow the fringe process but with a film. Um, and then further to that, how does that idea then happen? Because obviously people have ideas all the time. They don't always become films that we can watch. Yeah, and, and this idea started out as something completely different as well. Mm. Um, so the the coming up with ideas for stories is something that we would always just be spitballing back and forth for years and years at a time. Mm. And we've got a whole back catalogue of just like, you know, one line ideas, mm. a, a, a kind of pitch sentence for mm. either a scenario or a, a kind of comedy or a genre, um, something that might interest us that's probably not developed enough to be anything yet Mm. um and then when we decide that we want to make something it's either because um a lot more ideas have flown from one of these initial pitches or it's because we've decided we want to make something and we'll search through our ideas and find one that uh, we feel would be uh maybe easiest (laughs) to (laughs) to to flesh out into something more concrete Mm. um yeah. So you you went with an ideal host mm. and we're not we're gonna discuss the specifics of what happened in that film yet. So if, if people are listening to this interview and have not yet watched the film, you're safe from spoilers for now. Um but but it, it is coming. We will warn you <laughs> when we are going to do that. Um so with with an ideal host, um that that specific idea and the fleshing out of that um, happens uh, how, how long did it take for it to be written and, and given of course that you are credited as director and Tyler is credited as the screenwriter um, how how involved were you I guess in each other's areas like was it you stuck to your own circles or was it a very definitely not no we 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 both did everything really right we just we just kind of designated it that way because that's the way we wanted to be credited mm. um but yeah we uh i mean tyler wrote like uh 90 of the script mm. but we the, in terms of the the story and the structure we kind of spitballed that together mm. he came up with the initial idea um which was a little bit different to what it ended up being okay um and it was through his process of um, of outlining um, and then rewriting and um, doing that rigorously over a couple of weeks that we ended up with this script that you see on the screen. Mm. Um, the talking back and forth and coming up with the idea happened... Well, initially it was going to be my 30th birthday present. Right. The script. Oh, really? <laughs> it was going to be because I had been begging to do a movie instead of a theatre show for... Uh, a while. For a long time. Um, <laughs> and it just never happened. Yeah. And, um, uh, and the, the idea was still involved um, a dinner party mm. with a bunch of old friends um, who hadn't seen each other in a while. And the specifics of what happened was very different. Um, 
but that basic idea was there for a good a good three and a half four years right and then um it was kind of just me putting my foot down and saying all right we're shooting this in january next Mm. year (laughs) um that kind of got the ball rolling and right. where we really sat down and actually started to work on it. So, it was so uh, roughly what time period in the year did the foot come down? Like the foot came down in, it would have been July, mm. 20, 2018, mm-hmm. where, um, I went scouting for a location for a farmhouse. Right. And I found one and put down a deposit for January 2019. Right, so... And basically, I put money down. I had booked Mm. it out for two weeks Mm. and said, all right, Mm. these are the shoot dates. It's the same as having a a fringe performance. Mm. (laughs) This is our deadline. This is where we need to be shooting. Mm. Um, So then we kind of talked about it back and forth a bit more but we didn't uh tyler didn't actually sit down and start writing the screenplay in earnest until october right so three months before you were shooting yes okay um by then though we had talked about it so much that there was a quite a lengthy outline mm. and it was pretty much all figured out it was more the 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 action of actually getting word to page yes right. which is always always a struggle yes um um, and I, again, needed to set a deadline. I, I made a, a read-through um, and asked a bunch of friends to be available for a read-through on the 1st of November. Okay, good. So, so um, what I'm learning here is deadlines are good. Deadlines are the only way we ever get anything finished. <laughs> and um, with theatre, Tyler set them all because he would just enter things mm. <laughs> without my knowledge right. sometimes. Um, and then it was like, oh, okay, we're doing this. So for film, I've discovered I have to set deadlines mm. and tell him, oh, by the way, this needs to be done by this, and there are other people, Who not just me. Mm. So it needs to be it needs to be like um, his um, his fear of looking bad in front of other people, right. not just me, that that will motivate him Excellent. to actually get writing done. So then it was, yeah. Um, I ended up writing the last 30 pages because um, it wasn't quite done in time. But I, I do remember a, a couple of sleepless nights two two days before mm. the first read through, um, just just sitting with Tyler while he was writing and then me being available or, or just writing some extra stuff at the end mm. and then just stitching it all together hours before right. <laughs> the, uh, the read through happened. And then... That was in November, and then we shot in January. We did another. We only we only ended up doing a kind of a draft and a half. Mm. Uh, we did after that first draft. We got some feedback from the actors that came in to read, and made a couple of tweaks. But the basic script is still probably probably eighty percent the same as that first draft. Right. We just ran with it. Mm. So, the the ball is started rolling with the foot going down, and and money going down on the location. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what was the cost of this film? Because I think obviously we we think of feature films and we have a 
we have some pretty big numbers in our heads because of the way that big blockbuster feature films are made. I'm presuming there was no massive studio bank rolling this. Um, no, it was all out of my bank account. It was okay. all, all my own savings. Mm-hmm. Um, I would estimate it would be almost 20 grand. Right. Um, for, for the whole shebang. The, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Though, having said that, um, filming equipment um, was stuff that I already owned. Right. Um, and... Um, pretty much no one got paid. <laughs> mm. So, so it was twenty grand, but in in actuality, possibly worth more. If if it was, uh, I, I suppose a, a, a set where everyone was getting paid. If it was set where everyone was paid, it would easily be five hundred grand, right. probably. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. But no. All all I could do was offer a place to stay mm-hmm. and food. Right. I think that's the, the, the bare minimum mm. you can um, offer if you're shooting on a location yeah. that's outside of uh, a major city. And the location is there, the wonderful town of Donnybrook. Yes, which I actually hadn't been to before. Oh, really? Um, no, I, I think I'd maybe driven through it, mm. but um, it was great. Uh, the, the house belonged to a, a high school mate oh wow um who whose family had a farm and and whose family also owns a a bunch of home building companies right that have um demo houses oh like like show homes show homes yeah exactly and i had um in my work at the production companies shot a bunch of commercials um, directed some commercials for those companies. Right. And I just remember being in these show homes that are preset as they're like basically sets that are pre-dressed. <laughs> um, and they were a joy to shoot in. And, and I just asked him, Hey, do you have any houses that like I could shoot a horror film in? <laughs> Cause these are so great. Mm. And he said, Oh, actually um, there, there is one on, like an an older one that's not used anymore on on my family's farm in Donnybrook, mm. so I rented it from him. Wow! And that was a bargain. Couldn't pass up the opportunity, and it was a beautiful location. Um, I mean, having having seen the film, it it is actually a really lovely location. And yeah. part of me was going like, oh, it, wow, well, that good location. Like I was like, I I thought it was just, it it felt quintessentially. Australian, right? And I mean, yeah. it helps that it's in Australia, but it just felt like various country properties that I've visited, with like the the lake and the 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 slightly hilly yeah. nature of it, and it was it was a really lovely location. Yeah. So once once we found that, it was really exciting, and we basically just yeah. On the day, I said I am renting this out mm. in this time period. Um, just give it to me now. <laughs> All right. I want to I want to lock it in. And um, and th- so that's what we did. Mm. So from this point on, listeners, I'm now going to say spoilers ahead because we are now going into the actual filming experience. And uh, I imagine all sorts of details are just going to have to be mentioned because of the nature of the film. So if you've not watched it, pause here, 
um, go get a copy. We might discuss how they can actually do that later on. In fact, that's actually a good question before we jump into um, more specifics. When you make a film like this, and then it gets entered and put into festivals and stuff, and that's where it debuted at a festival in July. Mm. Um, where, where where does it then live on? Like, like what what happens to it? Well, that um, is dependent on a number of factors. Mm. Um, for if you're just making it yourself, you have the opportunity to self distribute now on the internet. Mm-hmm. You can make a, a Vimeo or an Amazon Prime upload right and and you just get charged f- for um, streaming um, so you can get profit from that mm-hmm. or if you're lucky enough to know an actual distributor mm-hmm. or if they see it at one of the festivals they might contact you mm-hmm. um, that's the dream I guess um, most people nowadays, uh, it's it's kind of impossible to get funding without a distributor attached nowadays right. for any kind of major feature. Right. Um, that has to be in place before anything else. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, um, no one knows if anything's going to be seen. That makes sense. So we've given that this was independently funded by the bank of Rob Woods. Yes. Um, what what is its current state in in August twenty twenty? As of August, it's um, been entered into a bunch of festivals internationally, mm-hmm. and it's been accepted into a small handful, Okay, which is exciting. Um, and also, I have been contacted by a distributor okay. overseas in the US, um, and I'm currently talking to people about that, okay. which is so- a, a big shock to me, because I presume this would just be something on my showreel that no one would ever actually see. Well, that's tremendously exciting to hear. Yeah. So obviously right now, just for people who are listening, I know we just told them to go watch the film. There isn't actually a way for them to do that unless they know Rob Woods right now, is there? That's that's very true. Um, <laughs> if, if you're in Perth, um, it will be playing at the Revelation Film Festival in December mm-hmm. in, um, in the cinemas. Um, and... Um, you can keep an eye out for it at various horror films mm-hmm. um, or follow the Facebook page. Which Otherwise, is just an ideal host film, is it? Uh, it's just an ideal host, yep. Yep. Um, yeah, so um, um, if, if if and when it gets distributed on, on a sort of wider scale, we will also notify people on our various channels because um, I'm aware there may be a slight frustration on people about this program reviewing a film they can't actually watch. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but I also think it's important to, as a WA based podcast that discusses film, to look at WA films when when they come up, um, and so just just seeding the idea that this is a film out there for people, I think is um, it is an important part of that. Um, so now that you've had that, go watch the film, but you can't right now. <laughs> warning: uh, we are going to get into some details with the film um, because, as you've said, it is a horror film. Mm-hmm. But it it does not look like a horror film in any of its um I, I suppose PR in the the trailer there that's, are that's the hope yeah, yeah there it, are there are hints to it and because because I know who you are Robert Woods when I was watching the trailer for it when it was first released I was like hmm I feel as though we're not being told everything here <laughs> um, but I I think it's to to the benefit of the film um, I I think so uh, I I love going 
to film festivals and watching films with no preconceived notion of what they are. Mm. Um, I think I've talked about this on your podcast before, but um, when you see trailers for blockbusters nowadays, you, sometimes you get the the entire story. Yeah. Um, so you know exactly what you're getting, which is a comfort, obviously, to a lot of people, but um, for someone that likes to be surprised or not know the twists and turns, mm. um, it can be a, a thrilling to try and guess and be confounded mm. um, when a film zags when you thought it was going to zig. Mm. And I love that. And I wanted to make a film like that. Mm. And that meant um, building in the turns and then not letting anyone know <laughs> what they were. Yeah, because, I mean, watching this for the first time the other day, this film zags, ladies and gentlemen. You think there's zigs, and there are zags. It is, it is um, very, very well set up in that in that respect. So it is a horror film, though, as as you have said. Um, yeah. So that kind of gives the game away. It's I've yeah. vented it into a lot of horror film festivals, and mm. so um, one of the things I've been dealing with is um, it's I can announce it's in a film in the U, a festival in the UK called Grim Fest, which mm. will be on in October. Um. And they just wanted blood and guts um, images to sell the film, and right. they wanted they wanted to um, talk about. Well, we'll get into specifics. They wanted to talk about um, body snatching parasites and mm. all of the gore and everything. Um, but I just didn't want any of that to be shown. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I wanted to advertise it as a comedy um, mm. first and foremost. Which is what I think it is. Did you ever consider entering it into comedy festivals then? Like things that weren't horror based? Um, I, I have entered it into into other normal festivals as okay. well. Um, uh, obviously, if, it's, if you're watching it in a horror festival, you're going to have some preconceived notions as to what it is. Mm. Um, so it might not be as, as much of a surprise. Um, but hopefully still enjoyable. Mm. Um, but if you saw it in a normal festival, there's no way you'd necessarily know mm. um, the the genre twists that happen. Mm. Um, but it's it, advertising it as a horror film and a science fiction film, mm -hmm. um, which so far is how it has been, mm. is is fine because that's vague enough, and yeah. the horror genre covers such a huge spectrum of mm. like subgenres. Yeah, I mean even just with a title like An Ideal Host and suspecting going into it knowing there was some funky twist coming mm. and that it was probably going to be either horror or sci-fi related. That was kind of my feeling. Yeah. Obviously with a name like An Ideal Host. Mm. I will admit part of me was thinking vampires. Right. I, I was thinking vampires ahead of Alien Possession, although that idea certainly was in there. Mm. Um, and there's one shot where Nadia's makeup looks quite pale, and it's pretty early on, and I thought, oh, hang on, <laughs> is this a subtle hint? And it wasn't. But, um, <laughs> but I, I suppose, yeah, that kind of subversion of expectations is, is something that is important, particularly, well, obviously for a first-time viewer. Mm. Um, but... I also think that submitting it into the horror things and having it more aligned with horror 
is perhaps more um, more beneficial to the film in the long run, as people might go, okay, so this is going to turn horror at some point, as opposed to somebody going, oh, a comedy about young people. Oh my God, there's so much blood and broken bones. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so the the film, uh, as, as Rob has said, it's a horror and it's about alien possession. Um, and uh, it turns out that some of the people at this dinner party are possessed by aliens. Um, and I do have to say, I... I, I, I'm going to spoil my review of this film. I, I actually really like this film. Um, had, had I seen it I'm glad. independent of knowing anyone in it, I, I'm pretty sure I would have liked it. The fact it had multiple actors and creative people who I know and really respect working on it made it all the more enjoyable. But there were moments in that film that really stood out to me. And that first reveal of something supernatural where the character that um, Sinjin Croucher plays, um, Brett? Brett. Yeah. yeah. When he leans in to kiss Daisy and you just get that half a second of something coming out of his mouth that's not a tongue mm. in the dark. That made me go, oh, here we go. Like it was that thing of like <laughs> leaning forward and going, all right, what is this? It was, it was the same in the script read through mm. as well. Yeah. Um, it was fun because none of the actors knew what it was mm. um, but that description was in the script at that point right and and definitely at that stage in the film it's it's just before halfway through mm. um, and well and truly ready to take it to the next level mm. um, but that first reveal was something that um, I wanted to be uh, subtle enough that not 100% of the audience would catch yeah, and that happened in our review. Oh, brilliant. So I, I saw it, but our guest who hadn't seen the film, uh, Dr. Carmen Dolly, didn't catch it. So her first reveal of the tentacles yeah, was the proposal kiss. Amazing. And and that, that it, it, colours, it colours the next scene greatly mm. because some people think that Daisy is lying and right. some people think uh, that she's telling the truth because they saw something come out of Brett's mouth. Yeah. Um, and... I that that's exactly what I wanted mm. was um and I'm glad that um it's worked I, I think all of the times yeah. I've shown it to friends half have caught it and half haven't yeah so. well in, in our select group of two half saw it and half didn't Brilliant. so yeah it's it's working um and I, I'm just gonna I'm I'm sort of just thinking back to watching the film a few days ago and I'm just picking out very specific moments that I have questions about simply because you were the director um the decision to have the sequence that follows the kiss be that one long continuous take Mm. from daisy coming back in through to the proposal and the big mouthful of tentacles and everything that happens in the middle um what were you thinking you lunatic there's so much going on in that shot yeah that's um 17 pages of dialogue Mm. it's told in eight and a half minutes Mm. a single shot and the reason for that is twofold Mm -hmm. the first being that um the dinner party the actual dinner table scene that took place um before um we shot over two nights Mm -hmm. and getting all of the coverage of people just just sitting down at a table mm. um, but with that many different eye lines yeah it was the most complicated thing I think I've ever had to shoot yeah and it was a nightmare and it took so long um, 
and I was so scared that if I had to do coverage of that entire scene, mm. that we wouldn't finish the film before actors had to go back to right. um, Perth for yeah. fringe show obligations that they had. So um, I had set aside in the schedule the entire day to rehearse that scene and then the entire night to just film it in single takes mm. until we got one that was halfway decent enough that I thought I'd be able to fiddle with it in post to make it all right. <laughs> so and how many takes did you do of that? I believe that was the sixth take. Right. So, I mean, for a lot of those actors, um, I, I just know from experience, they have experience of working in theatre. So yes. to them, uh, and having spoken to Dan Buckle, who was on the podcast, um, mm. he, he spoke of it as though rehearsing it like it was a play sequence. Mm. Um, so I suppose from that perspective, it's not massively unusual for them. But you were operating the camera and had quite a lot of, I would say, quite complex movements to, to do. Yes. How was it for you, kind of rehearsing your, your moving through this world? Um, it was fine rehearsing it, but shooting it was exhausting mm. because that camera with the the gimbal rig is, is not a light thing. Mm. Um, and after about four or five minutes, I was like ready to drop it. Mm. And then you just have to keep going through it. You have to muscle through. Well, that's that's the that brings me to the second reason why mm. I wanted to shoot it in one take, which was um, I wanted the comedy first half to be all shot on tripods and um, and kind of static shots or mm. st still panning shots, um, very stable. Mm. And then Daisy's shot, uh, Daisy and Brett's conversation, and then the aftermath is a both single take gimbal shots where right. the camera starts to move. It's become a bit freer because mm. things are starting to flow out of control of the characters. Mm. Um, and then when it goes into horror, then we've ditched that and we've gone handheld and completely yeah. chaotic and it's, wild. It's full Paul Greengrass. It's, yeah. It's yeah. just the, yeah. Um, which I, I loved when we were shooting those scenes because I didn't really care as much about the the framing and <laughs> the the focus pulling, which was very difficult for me to do. Just that progression of being um, stable, uh, then to getting unstable mm. at the same time as the protagonist is feeling that way mm. was just a weird subliminal thing that I thought might helped the film and mm. also helped me um, when I was kind of just figuring out how to block and stage things and how I was going to shoot it. Mm. It was just, it provided a framework. Mm. And it's a, it's a great framework. And I'll be honest, I didn't notice. I didn't notice that, oh, these are all steady shots and now they're shaky. Like I noticed sometimes shots were shaky and like, oh, this is tense. And mm. again, in that kind of green grass kind of way. Mm. Um, but that's, that's a great framing narrative. Um, and I think it's, again, I think it's one of the reasons why I really like this film. Um, just was that it really felt as though a lot of care and attention had actually gone into it. It didn't feel like somebody was just, and go, click record on the camera. The, the whole thing felt very um, cultured, in a sense, in terms of like someone had taken care to to actually make all of this work. And I think I think it really... 
I, I just want to say it's very good. I just, I'm really pleased Thank you that so much. <laughs> I, I saw a film I liked and I get to speak to someone responsible for it and go, that was a really good film. Well, I mean, honestly, a, a lot of it was haphazard mm. and was just hit record and go. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that's a great compliment. Mm. Um, but I mean, like there's, there's so many elements to it, which I, I just had a great time watching. Um, I, I, I love the idea. Um, and I'm going to say this one's, Tyler's because it's it's more of a script thing mm. but that an opening conversation between um Jackson and it's Liz very Tyler <laughs> but just the idea of these two people rehearsing their proposal and it, it just it just told you so much about where they were at mm. um in their in their relationship and the type of people they were um and even though that's not necessarily a type of person that I always click with mm. I I just really enjoyed that opening because it was so unusual to have people, I guess, practicing this kind of thing and what their proposal was for. We we always love um, characters that are just just somewhat terrible people, mm. <laughs> and um, and certainly in this film, the characters uh, need to be relatable, but also annoying yeah um and it, it's a weird thing with horror films where people people get killed one by one you kind of there's the ones that you root for mm. getting killed the ones that you hate the ones that are super annoying and then the ones that you go oh not them yeah damn they were <laughs> so so to have try and set up that that typical uh teens in the woods mm. kind of um cast was is so fun and um yeah and a great deal of that is just tyler and his knowledge of um horror films and genre conventions and us just working out the mm. characters and um, obviously there's lots of very talented actors in this film that helps a great deal as well um and i i've got to say actually in terms of direction i really didn't give any of them any direction right like they're all they're all people that I know and I'm friends with and they're all people that can read that script and go, yep, mm. I know what this is. Mm. Um, we used such kind of stock <laughs> genre tropes. Mm. They're like, yes, we get it. Um, and they just, they just did it. Um, they were such troopers. Um, yeah. The film would not be the same without that cast. Mm. And, um, and it was crazy because, like, up until like two days beforehand, we didn't even have a full cast. Yeah, we had people s- switching out. Um, and, yeah, it's. I mean, it, I think it's a very well cast film, just in terms of, um, you know, knowing the type of actors that are available to films being made in WA at that time. Mm. Um, I I also love the fact that you put Andrea Gibbs and Sam Longley in this film for like two minutes each because <laughs> they're amazing actors. <laughs> they're probably the most famous people in my film. <laughs> yeah, and they're both in it for like. Two and a half scenes. No, they're such troopers that they they um, came down. Um, they drove down to do that. Uh, Andrea actually, her her mum and dad's property, her their farm was like literally on the same road. It was oh, like really? two farms away oh, from wow. where we were filming. So she was like, "Yeah, I'll come down." Uh, that's kind of one of the other reasons why I thought Donnie Brook would be great. It was like, ah, oh, I know Andrea lives here. I can. Get- <laughs> <laughs> get this amazing actress to come and be in my film yeah and like um they are in it for a really small amount of time but um 
they need to make an impact that lingers over the whole film mm-hmm. and so when you get two great actors that can do that that mm-hmm. can just show up in one scene yeah but make enough of an impression that that you know they show up for one shot at the end and you're like aha yeah you remember them oh absolutely and and like i said i think it's a very well cast film i think performances are good um i mean i i, I just i come away i came away from that film just with either more sort of like respect for how good a physical performer nadia collins is oh, um just brilliant because poor liz takes an absolute beating in this film she does um and her her nadia's sort of like physical ability mm. um was as, as a performer is is just brilliant but um was that a key part i guess in, in casting like knowing, knowing that you had someone in did you have someone like well, nadia in mind because of her physical training definitely um in fact i we we were thinking of nadia when we were writing it because um we love working with her and think she's so underrated and mm. we really wanted to give her something to showcase her ability because mm. um, we love her that much. Um, and I'm so grateful that she was available and said yes. Um, and that um, I, and I knew that she had all of that clown school experience mm. um, and the, the physical presence. I've been watching her do comedy for years mm. and um, what was great is that on set, doing that more physical, physically punishing stuff um, towards the end of the film, her and the rest of the actors were so gung-ho. They were all about just diving in headfirst mm-hmm. and getting it done um, as as smoothly and simply as possible. And then relaxing afterwards which is kind of how we ran the set we kind of just jumped in when we were working we were working 100 mm. percent, and then we would stop and muck around and and have a lot of time well hopefully enough time off to to um to have fun as mm. well now i i do know from having spoken to uh dan who plays uh kyle mm. in this film um there were a couple of actors who were a little bit troublesome <laughs> Uh, a pair of cows that um, no literal cows for the listeners at home that make appearances in this film um, and apparently about your uh, unexpected turn as a as a as a cowboy as a herdsman oh yeah um, yes I believe there's footage of that there. <laughs> I yeah the, I had I I had planned to um, storyboard the entire film mm. but there just was no time to do it but I did have in my head a couple of specific shots mm. that I wanted and one of them was a field with people standing in it and cows in the foreground mm. and um, I uh, where we were staying the, the cows would be um, moved into whatever field they were in that day um, it's a it's a operational farm that mm. we were shooting in and yeah. we were shooting on part of it um, but we were allowed to wander around and go through paddocks if we wanted to, um, which was a great help. But also it meant that um, when I would set up shots, um, the cows would just wander around and <laughs> I kind of wanted them to be, you know, foreground in a very specific spot so mm. that I could do a gag that I wanted to. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I just um, I just threw caution to the wind and 
jumped over a fence and started clapping my hands and and um, getting them to just just basically hurting them right <laughs> until they were in shot and then I would run away and hit record on the camera and then start clapping action. at the actors going like come on come on hurting them yep. in the same way I, yeah I, I kind of direct them the same way really <laughs> mm. well if it's good enough for humans it's good enough for cows totally um before we we uh, move on um to to sort of, I suppose reflections on the film the parasites themselves mm. I understand that the majority of the time that we see them it's a practical effect or at least that's what I've been led to believe by Mr. Dan Buckle uh, was was he correct or was he leading me astray uh, I think a hundred percent of the time they are practical effects really however some of them were they're, they're always a, a physical thing that's been filmed mm. but sometimes it's then been shot on a green screen and composited in right so it was always uh, a puppet basically mm. um that i had I had uh, I, that i designed and, and had made mm. um out of silicone something that i could shake about and it would move tentacles around and mm. look kind of vaguely threatening or like greebly i mean very threatening is is just how i put it because i love the way it moved me too it's it's so cool i had in my head how i wanted it to move Mm. and when it came out of the mold um i was so happy it was exactly how i imagined it in my head and we made four of them Mm. um i regret not naming them (laughs) but they were they they went through hell as well um they were on fishing wires mm. they were uh, uh had rods shoved into them and and were puppeted around mm. like on a walking stick um they were th- just thrown into shots or just rolled basically lawn bowled mm. <laughs> into into frame um and then just thrown at people and they would catch them and pretend that they're attacking them so when a when a tentacle was coming or when tentacles were coming out of the mouth mm. for example um how how was how was that created so i just put a kind of a green sheet up on my bedroom door mm-hmm. and uh put a tripod in front of it pointing at the green sheet and i would just kind of dangle it in front of the camera and then um and then cut out the tentacles in the computer and 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 tracked it to the face of the actor right cuz bugger me it looked great and when when dan was saying that he was like i'm pretty sure the majority of those things are practical effects i was like get out of here essentially technically there's only uh one part of the film that is computer generated would that be the shot at the end going up to reveal the land and the meteor not even that uh that i mean that is it's not computer generated it Mm. is uh, a drone shot oh that was a drone shot it was a drone shot but it's stitched together right so i took a drone up as high as you're legally allowed to do it but then i flew it backwards and forwards in a grid mm. and then stitched it together to make it pull back even further wow in the computer okay and that's then, that's very impressive so the um again and then so the the only cg thing is the actual meteor right so that you only see it briefly Mm. Um, but that's um, just a sphere that I <laughs> rendered a chrome texture on. Okay. And is it is it? Um, I, I suppose is it there 
they're invading ship basically, basically it's just yeah. yeah it's just it's an invading ship but it didn't really matter what it looked like because all you saw was the impact yeah exactly right oh, so that that and the um and the the smoke particles from when the meteor lands mm. but everything else is filmed elements that have been composited in that's incredible one again i'm just remembering things that i really liked from this film <laughs> was the spin the bottle sequence at all sort of like inspired by or an homage to john carpenter's the thing um 100 percent. yes <laughs> <laughs> we uh and, and that's one of the things where we started off where we knew we were going to make a film about parasites was mm. that we uh went through all of the parasite tropes and mm. we watched as many parasite films as we could right um to to figure out what's the shorthand what what does everyone know about parasites mm. um and every single film had the scene where they had to figure out who was infected and who wasn't, and mm. they needed some kind of test. And mm. the most famous one is John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm. Um, and it makes me jump every single time. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Mm. I love it. Um, and we uh, had to come up with our own really lame twist on that. Yeah. Like, what what's a stupid dinner party version of that i mean and it was perfect so, it was, as, yeah. so, as soon as it started happening it was this is the test scene and it's of course it's a spin the bottle thing and it's it's i thought it was just so beautifully done and when uh the the tentacles come out of kyle's mouth it made me feel the same way as when it happens in the thing where it's like oh Brilliant. um yeah because I'll, I'll be honest i wasn't expecting it to be kyle I, <laughs> Great. I, yeah i was i was bamboozled i was thrown um but but it makes sense because he was alone in the pub when John was in the toilet and that's mm-hmm. where Andrea Gibbs' character was. And yep. it makes sense. You but got it. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, look, I want to watch it again. Uh, it's, that's that's a good sign. I really did enjoy the film. So now that, now that it's completed uh, and you obviously went through a very lengthy editing process, um, what, what, what was that like as someone who is predominantly known as an edit- editor? Um, and you obviously work in a lot of various capacities what's it like editing something that's yours though like how does it change it it's um i i prefer editing things that i've shot because i know exactly what i got and for a lot of this i didn't know what i got because i was literally running around haphazardly um trying to grab whatever i could yeah um but in my head while i'm on set i kind of I'm already in the editor mindset of I just need this and this and this and I can put a sequence together. Mm. Um, and then when I get into the edit, that's what happens. Right. The actual editing of it, um, just getting a rough assembly, didn't take too long. Mm. Maybe maybe uh, two or three months. Mm. However, um, as I was going along, there were long pauses there were there would maybe be a month or two in between where i just couldn't look at the footage anymore because i was so disappointed in what i shot Mm. (laughs) um so i guess all up it took about six months to get to the first edit done um and then as i was editing i was also going through and putting in um visual effects and Mm. um things that needed to be stitched together or, or fixed up or painted out um, just because of the nature of how I shot the film. Mm. Um, 
a lot of stabilizing. And then when it came to watching the film for the first time in a premiere screening kind of capacity, how does that feel? Because I, I think we, we sort of, if, if someone has never worked on a film before or never made a film before, I, I think it can be quite difficult to actually know quite what that feeling is. Um, how was it for you, though, as this was your baby? Um, it was just great fun. Mm. It was just a fun night. By that stage, I'd seen it so many times. I kind of am averse to watching to the, the film's positive or negative aspects except as to how it plays with an audience, with, mm. with new people. So that's the only way I can experience the film now is watching it with with people mm. that um that are seeing it for the first time. And that's that's joyous mm. when they react pretty much in any way. Right. <laughs> I'm I'm happy with any kind of reaction to this film. If it's disgust, if they hate it, if mm. they love it, it's just all of it brings me joy. Mm. <laughs> um so a couple of uh specific film-based questions to to finish on Mm -hmm. um i would like to know what was your favorite gore based effect because there was quite a lot of them on reflection i was going through my mental roller decks of axe in the foot chopping Mm. off the own arm half a singin hanging off a car um there's loads to choose from um Mm. but is there one that jumps out for you the one that um was a moment that I've wanted to put into a film for years mm. was um, uh, the forearm bone into the neck. It was um, so gross. And, and I've, I've always wanted to, to see people using dismembered limbs as weapons. Mm. And we had written it into the script. I was, uh, we basically built the end around getting to that point. Mm. <laughs> um being the big climax of the gore, I suppose, um, and of Liz's relationship with Jackson. Mm. Basically, that's the definitive moment for her. Yeah. Um, and we made that, and then... So we wrote the script in October, and then in December, um, a film called Overlord mm. came out, uh, a bad robot production, mm. and in that they had zombies... Um, zombie Nazis soldiers hmm. and there was this scene where one of them had an entire forearm removed and it just had a big long protruding bone and he runs up to a woman and threatens her in the neck with it and is screaming in her face and me and Tyler were sitting in the cinema going don't you dare shove that into your neck don't you dare I will I've been wanting to do this gag for years don't take this away from me um, did that they didn't. Oh, hey. they didn't. And so I was like, at least, at least I get to to shove it in the jugular. Yeah, um, and I, I must admit as well, when I was watching it and I saw the exposed bone, I think it's shot in such a way where you actually build that expectation in a little bit. Hmm. For, for me, which is absolutely brilliant, because a bit of me was like, she could just jab him with the broken. I know it would hurt, but like she could, and then she did it, and I was like, yes, yeah, this is excellent. This brilliant. is this is what I want. Um, and yeah, I think I just think the the performances around the gore are so great. I think they really sell what's happening. Yeah, well, um, it's weird because I um, I was shooting it and 
in the, in the process of shooting it and putting it together, it, uh, it all felt very silly mm. and very um, um, just fake and wasn't sure if it would ever cut together, if it would ever make an impact on anyone. Um, but thankfully, with the, the music and the sound, the amazing sound um, post-production team that, mm. that worked on it, um, it seems to make quite an impact so i'm mm. really surprised and grateful for that mm. so now that the film is done we've mm. got the first rob woods directed feature film under the belt yes what's next more films excellent a whole bunch more mm. i i want to keep making films i want to keep doing that um uh we uh trying to start work on the next one mm. um just and exactly the same thing that we did this time um which is uh try and write a script and get something together Mm. and just give ourselves deadlines to make something with no money Mm. but at the same time we're working um with uh some more professional producers to try and actually um get funding for a a quote unquote proper film mm-hmm. <laughs> like one with actual budget um and possible investment from government bodies right um and that's a much lengthier process mm. um that involves a whole bunch of rounds of um interviews and fundings and development and um it's something that we're keen on exploring but at the same time we also just want to be making stuff so <laughs> We're trying to do both. That's fair. And I, I, I'm going to presume there isn't a sequel to this film in mind. There isn't, like, an ideal host being prepared. Um, we, 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 like, amused ourselves by talking about it, but no. Um, no. I think this film is a very no. definitive full stop. And yeah, it's, I it's do too. beautiful. I love the the replication of her prepa- preparing the, the dinner party with barricading the house. It, it evokes very much like that sort of quick shot Edgar Wright style that's in Shaun of the Dead. And I just thought it was lovely. And her sort of triumphant final shot where she's got one arm and an axe, but she is ready to kick some alien butt. <laughs> it was just wonderful. Yeah. Um, the the final question I suppose I have for you then is, is to do with dinner parties. Yes. Okay. Um, because obviously it's a film about being an ideal host. If you were to host a dinner party how would you be hosting it in such a way where people would then refer to you as Rob Woods, the ideal host? What what do you think you would have to do to create the ideal dinner party situation? Oh, oh. Um, well, I see it'll differ for various people, but I think for my friends mm. um, and me in particular... An ideal host is someone that has an abundance of films and an amazing setup and will just supply you with endless snacks Mm. and a comfy couch to watch. (laughs) So that's my idea of being an ideal host. And that's that's kind of what I do. (laughs) Excellent. Well, uh, Rob, that brings us to the end of this interview. Thank you so much for coming on the Cinema Catch-Up Club in your official capacity as as a filmmaker. Thank you. My pleasure.
And for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. This has been another in our series of interviews, and if you're listening to it when it's released, that's because you're on the Patreon. Uh, if you're listening to this sometime later and you're going, what, some people got to listen to this before me? How does that work? You have to join up on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. You can join for as little as a dollar a month, and you get extra bonus content early and first, such as this delightful interview with Rob Woods. We have some other interviews with uh, filmmakers and people involved in the process uh, already there, and hopefully we'll have some more coming in the pipeline in the future as well. Uh, That's all available over at our various um, podcast hosting sites. You can get access to all of them through iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Uh, and also over on the Patreon. Uh, But that is all for this special episode. So until next time, goodbye. See ya. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.